destitute have to suffer eternally to pay for the sins that we deserved. We might suppose that actually we would have suffered much more than Christ. But to understand this disparity, we, we need to realize that for us mere mortals, we are incapable of bearing the unlimited wrath of God in a limited space of time. And therefore, God would pour out his fierce wrath upon us humans in, in small measures, spreading out that punishment over all eternity. That's what, Christ, that's what God would do for mere mortals. But our Lord Jesus Christ was no mere mortal. He was also true God. And as a result of being true God, he possessed divine power. In Lord's Day 6 of the Catechism, we confess he must be true God so that by the power of his divine nature, he might bear in his human nature the wrath, the burden of God's wrath. And so because Jesus is true God, he could bear the full wrath of God compressed in time so that God's justice was fully satisfied during the time of Christ's life on earth, especially towards the end. And because Christ suffered that full wrath of God compressed in time, he suffered like no other. No doubt that's why we read that while Christ was in the Garden of Gethsemane, his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Because the, the, the stress that was upon him was so intense, and because his spiritual suffering was, was so great, the, the tiny blood vessels in his skin started to burst, and the blood started to mix with his sweat. And so Christ's spiritual suffering, especially at the end of his life, it was far more intense than any human has ever suffered. Now when you hear about all this, we are, we are naturally repulsed. We don't like to talk about these kind of things. We're naturally saddened by the fact that Christ had to bear all this. But at the same time, beloved, we are greatly comforted. Because of the magnitude of Christ's suffering also shows the magnitude of his love and his grace. Because our Lord Jesus Christ loved us so much, he was willing to suffer so much for us. And we give praise and thanks to, this, to God for this immeasurably great love in the suffering and sorrow that Christ bore for us. But there's something else that I still want to consider when speaking about the magnitude of Christ's suffering. If you and I were allies in crime, and if we were both sentenced to, say, 10 years in prison, and if a third person was willing to be a substitute and take our punishment for us, and if a judge would allow substitution, would he not require that that substitute suffer 20 years? My 10 years? Your 10 years? Scripture tells us that the number of the elect is symbolically, okay, it's a symbolic number, is 144,000. It's only symbolic, but let's work with it. Should not Christ have endured damnation 144,000 times over? 
If I deserve to be condemned and you deserve to be condemned, then the substitute should be twice condemned, should he not? And so we, we need to speak for a moment about the, the great value of Christ's suffering. Because Christ is true God, he is worth far more than mere mortals like you and I. Because Christ is true God, his death has infinite value and worth. I invite you to open up the Canons of Dort. That's on page 572 of your book of praise, page 572. We'll read what we confess about the worth of Christ. Because he is not just true man, but because he's true God. Page 572, article 3. And it has us titled, The Infinite Value of Christ's Death. This death of the Son of God is not only... Is, uh, sorry, is the only and most perfect sacrifice and satisfaction for sins of infinite value and worth, abundantly sufficient to expiate the sins of the whole world. And Article 4, why his death has infinite value? This death of Christ is of such great value and worth because the person who submitted to it is not only a true and perfectly holy man, but also the only begotten Son of God of the same eternal and infinite essence with the Father and the Holy Spirit. For these qualifications were necessary for our Savior. Further, this death is of such great value and worth because it was accompanied by the sense of the wrath and curse of God by which, which we by our sins deserved. And so we confess that Christ's death has infinite value and worth, abundantly sufficient to cover for the sins of this entire world and a thousand besides. Peter speaks about this when he says, We were ransomed not with perishable things like silver and gold, but with the precious, with the costly, with the valuable blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, beloved, praise God and praise him for that great mercy and the grace that you see in our Lord Jesus Christ. Because our sins are great and grievous, we ought to suffer endlessly and a hundred thousand times over. But all of our sins are paid for because of the suffering of our Lord Jesus Christ. And with that, we conclude our first point. We move on to our second. We go to Christ on trial. You know, throughout Christ's life, there were those who sought to kill him. Already in his infancy, there was Herod, who sought to kill the child who was born king of the Jews. But Christ could not die without a trial. And so God directed Mary and Joseph to flee with the Christ child to Egypt. And in Luke 4, we read that Jesus, after being tempted by the devil, he began his earthly ministry as a man of 30 years old or so. He began his earthly ministry, and the first sermon that Christ ever preached was in the city where he grew up, in Nazareth of Galilee. And what a sermon it was. But it raised so much opposition that the people of Nazareth were filled with, with wrath. 
They were angry beyond measure. And Luke tells us that the citizens of Nazareth, and I'm quoting here from Luke 4, verse 9, the citizens of Nazareth rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow, to the edge of a hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But Jesus could not be, he could not die without a trial. And so with divine power, Jesus miraculously made a path through the crowd that all wanted to kill him, and he walked right through them. He walked away without anyone so much as laying a hand on him. Christ could not die without a trial. And we read on more than one occasion in the letters, in the, in the gospel according to John, that Christ's preaching and his teaching aroused the great indignation of the Jewish leaders. So in John 5 already, we read that the Jews wanted to kill Jesus. And again in chapter 8, we read the same. And in John 11, we read the same. And so the leading Jews, they, they earnestly wanted to, to kill Jesus. They would stone him if they could, just like they would later stone Stephen, the first martyr. But God would not permit Christ to die at the hands of a lynch mob. Christ could not die without a trial. And why was the trial so important? Because it had to be made clear to all that Christ did not merely suffer the wrath of man, but that he was suffering the just wrath of God. You see, beloved, judges, earthly judges, are appointed by God, and earthly judges act on God's behalf. King Jehoshaphat, you can read about that in 2 Chronicles 19, King Jehoshaphat expressed that truth wonderfully, beautifully, when he said to the judges in Israel, he said, take care, consider what you do, because you do not judge for men, but for the Lord. The Lord is with you in giving judgment. Paul said something similar about appointed authorities. He wrote in his letter that an earthly judge is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. The government, the judges, the earthly judges, they are God's ministers. They are God's servants. And so Christ could not die without a trial. God insisted that Jesus Christ would be tried by one of his servants, one of his ministers. Christ had to be tried by God's earthly representative to make it clear to one and all <coughs> that Christ was not suffering merely the wrath of men, but that he was suffering the wrath of God. Now the Catechism mentions Pontius Pilate, before whom Jesus Christ was tried, but before we speak about Pontius Pilate, I want to mention that Christ was tried before the Sanhedrin first of all. That's the High Jewish Council. In Luke 13, the evangelist records an interesting remark by the Lord Jesus. He spoke these words when he was in Galilee, which was being ruled at the time by Herod Antipas, that's the son of Herod the Great. And the Pharisees came up to Jesus and warned Jesus to flee from Galilee because Herod wanted to kill him. 
Now, I'm not going to get into the question why it was that Herod wanted to kill Jesus and why it was that the Pharisees warned Jesus to flee. But what I want to focus on is on the answer or the words that Jesus gave in response to the Pharisees' words. He said that it was necessary for him to make his way to Jerusalem because, and here's the words that I want to draw attention to, Jesus said, it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. Jesus had to go to Jerusalem. That's where he must be tried. That's where he must be judged. That's where he must be condemned. And Jesus, when he came to Jerusalem, he lamented, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. So why did Jesus have to go to Jerusalem? Why would he have to be condemned and put to death there? Because, beloved, that's where the authority was. In Jerusalem was the seat of the highest Jewish authority, the Sanhedrin. That's the place where the chief priests and the scribes and the elders of the people met together to pass judgment. And it's from that place that the Jewish leaders then would put prophets to death as in the past. And so in the time of Jesus, the Sanhedrin met in the temple precinct in the hall of hewn stone. And there this Jewish high court exercised their authority. They conducted their religious as well as political and judicial business. And it was here that our Lord Jesus Christ was brought and put on trial. That's where the high priest was, who was appointed, ordained by God. That's where God's appointed servant administered justice on God's behalf. Now, sadly, from a human perspective, justice was not upheld in this court of law. Many false witnesses came forward, but no two agreed. And finally, two men came forward who agreed that Jesus had said that he would destroy the temple in three days and rebuild it. Or that he would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. But that charge in itself was not sufficient to put Christ Jesus to death. And so the high priest, he put Jesus under oath to answer the question, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Christ acknowledged that he was. And for that reason, they charged him with blasphemy, a crime worthy of death. And the next morning, the chief priests and the elders plotted how they could execute Jesus. Although Roman law did not permit the Sanhedrin to execute criminals, that didn't stop them. That's clear because just a, a number of months later, they would execute Stephen by stoning him. And so the fact that they did not have the authority to execute Jesus would not have stopped them in itself. God stopped the Sanhedrin from putting to Jesus to death by themselves. Because it was God's intent that Jesus would be tried by still a higher human court. That is the Roman government of which Pontius Pilate was governor. It was necessary, beloved, that the highest court on earth should try Jesus. And then declare him innocent, which the Jewish high council did not do. The Jewish Sanhedrin did not 
uphold Jesus as innocent. But Pontius Pilate did. In John 18, Pilate said to the crowds, I find no guilt in him. And after a further discussion with Jesus, Pilate reappeared for a second time. And again for a second time he said, See, I'm bringing Jesus to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. And again the crowds, incited by the Jewish leaders, cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! So finally Pilate caved in. But in caving in, he said, You take him and crucify him. And so for a third time he said, Because I find no fault in him. Three times the highest court on earth declared that Jesus was innocent of all wrongdoing. Pilate, with divinely given authority, knowingly sentenced an innocent man to death. And that judgment, beloved, was not merely a human judgment. It was made by God's minister of justice. It was pronounced with God's permission. Yes, it's ultimately, beloved, it was God ultimately who condemned Jesus. Because Pilate acted with the power and authority of God. And Jesus even said that to Pontius Pilate. At the start on the trial, Jesus remained silent when questioned by Pilate about all these accusations of the Jews. Jesus would not disdain to, to answer these trumped up charges. And Pilate said to him, do you not know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you? And Jesus answered, you would have no power at all against me unless it had been given to you from above. God gave Pilate the power to crucify Jesus. And Pilate made the judgment as God's minister of justice. Pilate made this decision with God's permission. Because it must be clear to all that Jesus was sentenced to death not just by humans. He was sentenced to death by God himself. The innocent for the guilty. The just for the unjust. Uh, the, the, unjust for the, ju the just for the unjust. And do you see what's happening here, beloved? Pontius Pilate is God's representative, right? I've stressed that. But who was Jesus Christ? He was the representative of whom? Well, you... And me. Jesus Christ is our legal representative. Our substitute. And so when Christ, our legal substitute, was judged by Pontius Pilate, God's representative. What was really happening, beloved, is we were being judged by God. When Jesus was Condemned by Pontius Pilate, we actually were condemned by God. Do you understand what the implications are of this, beloved? The fact is, we have been judged in 33 AD. We have already passed through the judgment. And we will not come into judgment again. Jesus said that in John 5 verse 24. He said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who, has, who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, 
that has passed from judgment, judgment to life. We have been judged already at 33 AD. We will not come into judgment again. And so we have nothing to fear on the day of judgment when our Lord Jesus Christ returns. We have nothing to fear when the books are open and account is given of all that we have said and done. We have been judged in Christ. And doesn't that fill you with a profound sense of peace and comfort? Now there is no one who can lay any charge against us. There is no one who can condemn us. We have been condemned in Christ. We have been punished in Christ. Christ has done that for us as our substitute in our place. And so that's the, the gospel of Christ on trial. Now we come to our last point, Christ crucified. We mentioned previously, beloved, that the citizens of Nazareth, Nazareth wanted to push Jesus over the edge of the cliff. We mentioned that on many occasions the Jews wanted to stone Jesus. Once when they even picked up stones already. We explained already that Jesus could not be killed by a lynch mob. Christ had to be legally tried, we've stressed. But God organized more and God ordered more than just that Jesus Christ would be put to death. God ordained that he would die in a special way. He wouldn't be pushed over the cliff. He wouldn't be stoned like Stephen was stoned. God ordained that Jesus Christ would be crucified. And Paul tells us why in Galatians 3. Paul writes, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And Paul here is referring to a Mosaic law that we find back in Deuteronomy 21. It says there that if a man has committed a sin deserving of death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day for a hanged man is cursed by God. A hanged man was cursed by God. It's worth noting that the man who was hung was not cursed because he was hanged, but just the opposite. A man was hanged because he was cursed. Hanging didn't cause a man to be cursed, but hanging was a symbol of the curse that already lay upon him because of a sin for which he was put to death. For cursed is everyone who does not confirm all the words of God's law by doing them. So why was the cross, why was hanging a symbol of God's curse? Well, there's two texts in the Old Testament that give us some explanation. And the first is in Numbers 25, verse 4, where God refers to the people who had worshipped Baal of Peor. And God said to Moses, hang the offenders... And then there's those words before the Lord. Hang the offenders before the Lord. And similar words were repeated in 2 Samuel 21. In this instance, the Gibeonites had come to King David, demanding that David punish the house of Saul, because Saul, in earlier years, had killed some of the Gibeonites. 
And so now the Gibeonites come to David and they, they want to be avenged of that unjust slaughter. And the Gibeonites said to David then, let seven of his sons be given to us so that we may hang them before the Lord. There's again that phrase, before the Lord. So by lifting up these men, hanging them on a tree before the Lord, they were, so to speak, they were presented to the wrath of God. Symbolically, the transgressor who was hung on a tree was, was given into the hands of God, as it were, signifying that he was cursed, not just by men, but by God as well. And that certainly is true for our Lord Jesus Christ. It wasn't just men who cursed him. Christ was cursed by God. God made him to be sin who knew no sin. Our sins were laid upon Christ so that he might become the accursed one in our place. He is the one who was rejected. Not just by man, but by God. And his rejection by God was symbolically portrayed in, in his crucifixion. Christ Jesus was cursed so that we might be blessed. Christ Jesus was rejected and forsaken so that we might be accepted into God's favor forever. That we might never be forsaken. And so when you put all this together about the suffering of our Lord Jesus Christ and his trial and his crucifixion, it's no wonder then that the cross has become such a treasured symbol for Christians through the ages. No wonder that people have written songs about the cross, like the old rugged cross. On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem, emblem of suffering and shame. And I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. Cherish the cross, beloved. Amen. Let's respond, singing from hymn 25, stanzas 3 and 4.
Let's give thanks to God. Lord God, Father, when we hear this age-old gospel proclaimed once again to us, we're left with, with the question, why? Why would you show such mercy and grace to sinners like us? What could possibly induce you to send your only begotten Son to take not just our human form, but to take our sin and our cursedness upon himself? And the only reason that we can find, Father, is because it was your sovereign good pleasure and because you, in your pleasure, chose to love us. And Father, when we look to the cross, we, we see the extent of your love. Your love that knows no bound, no limits. You were willing to give your only begotten Son to suffer and die for us. Father, we acknowledge our unworthiness. We acknowledge our sins. We acknowledge that we only deserve to suffer eternal condemnation for all eternity. But how we rejoice in the gospel that our sins are washed away through the blood and suffering of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for the peace that it gives us, for the comfort, for the hope. We can look forward to the day of Christ's return without fear, knowing that we will not come into condemnation because in Christ Jesus we have been condemned. We have been punished. Our sins have been paid for in full. And so we can look forward to the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we can say, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. And that we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You now have the opportunity to give your offerings to the Lord. The collection is taken for the mission work in PNG. And afterwards, let's sing standing hymn 26.
Lift up your hearts unto the Lord, receive his blessing, and go in peace. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.